Current Thing with me, Nick Dixon, and we have another excellent guest today. She is the author of five books, including A State of Fear, and most recently, Free Your Mind. There it is. It is, of course, Laura Dodsworth. Thanks so much for doing the show, Laura. Well, thank you for having me. That's brilliant. Yeah, I've been... This is a very wide-ranging book. I've, I've read all of it, pretty much, and I've got so many questions. It might go all over the place, but I'll, I'll do my best. I thought I'd start with this, because I've been fascinated for a while with why the sort of vaccine slash COVID propaganda worked on some people, but on, not others. And you talk about it in the book, you say, you talk about, well, you talk about head girls or Karens who are susceptible to rules. They're high in conscientiousness, agreeableness and anxiety. And I was thinking, I'm high in those, but I didn't fall for it. What's going on? The only one I don't have is agreeableness. I have sort of medium level. But I was thinking, why do some people like me not follow the herd on this stuff, even though I do actually have some of those traits? Mm. Wow, so you're going in with a really massive question. Yeah. So we're mixing up COVID and vaccines because that's that's different. And why did some people fall for it? And why didn't some other people fall for it? Like, it's like the million dollar question. If I could answer that question, I would write the world's best selling book on on brainwashing and I'd make a fortune. I think it's quite complex, you know, it's it's multifactorial. I mean, the first thing to say is whether you fall for propaganda or not, or nudging or claims and advertising, whether you're easily influenced or not, I don't think it's set in stone. If I thought that, I wouldn't bother writing this book. So first of all, you can learn. You can learn to be more open-minded and less easily influenced. I feel like the question you've asked me is actually, it's actually the whole book. Um, but what you're alluding to when you talk about the head girls and the Karens is a chapter of the book called, oh, what was it called? Um, is it Don't Overthink yeah. It? Yeah. So the premise, the premise of that is that people think that if you're very clever, you won't be brainwashed. Um, and it's just not true. There are different ways to come at this. First of all, some very clever people have believed some very silly things. You know, you can be so open-minded, your brains fall out, as G.K. Chesterton said, or Orwell said, there are some things that are so absurd only an intellectual could believe them. You know, this happens over and over. And there's a few reasons for it. One is that people are so clever, they're very good at justifying their beliefs. That's motivated reasoning. We see it a lot with Brexit. Brexit's confirmation bias, how everything that goes wrong is because of Brexit. Um, I am going to, I'm saying this as somebody who voted Remain, by the way, because I get accused of being some kind of right-wing media darling Brexiteer. I would actually vote Leave now, but at the time I voted Remain, I found it a difficult decision. So to make this very clear, there is no emotion in what I'm saying, but people will blame every single economic and social woe on Brexit because for them, it was a huge deal. You know, they're very bitter and disenfranchised. And so they use motivated reasoning. Um, also, you know, this, this idea of luxury beliefs, look at the things that people who are clever and privileged and live in Western societies believe. As social hierarchy has become less fixed in the world, there are other ways to show your social status. And that's through beliefs, you know, the idea that a man can become a woman, uh, that men can be pregnant. This is a luxury idea. This is not what people are obsessing over in developing countries. Um, so people will believe some very strange things in order to signal their social status. And even if they don't necessarily believe them, 
they'll pretend they do. Um, and that's the cultural mediation hypothesis, that you get on better if you appear to believe and advocate for the same things as the people in your milieu. And, and just to say, you know, um, all of these ideas that are framed in the book, they're not necessarily mine and Patrick Fagan's, our, uh, my, my co-author, we've collated them from other places. People recognise luxury beliefs as um, um, Robert Henderson as well, for instance. So don't think that you can be so clever you can't be brainwashed but there are other things that get in the way you know there's there's the blip so people are more likely to be unduly influenced if they're on a downbeat in life that could be in everyday life that you're hungry angry lonely or tired this is the classic aa thing you know addicts are more likely to fall off the wagon if they're in that physical emotional psychological downbeat but it's also, it also works on a bigger scale. You know, why do people adopt these crazy beliefs when they go to university? Why do they get sucked into all kinds of modern progressive ideologies that you and I can't quite get our heads around? That's because they've gone to university. They've totally disrupted their lives. Everything's changed. They've gone from being with their parents in kind of formalised academic setting to being in a university where they're, you know, they're not really... They're not, they're not under the same kind of influence of, of other adults and they're getting drunk all the time, they're getting tired, and they're more susceptible to new ideas. But it also works on a society-wide level. So you talk about COVID and the vaccine, well, this was a global downbeat. And it's at times like that when a whole population can really change direction. So fear, fear was the emotion in that engine. People were frightened of getting ill and dying. Pandemics are frightening times. But then when you put on top of that the sort of propaganda that governments used or just plain straightforward public health messaging or deliberate scaremongering, then you exacerbate the fear and you make people even more easily influenced because they're looking for guidance and help. The rational part of their brain is subdued by the fear. So there are lots of different things that can make clever people at least as susceptible to brainwashing as anybody else. Yeah, and there's also that theory, I think you talk about it in reference to Edward Dutton, who weirdly I met yesterday, but there's also that thing about midwits and that the low IQ will avoid something and the high IQ, but the midwits will fall for it. I was thinking maybe I'm the low IQ, maybe that's that's what's happened there, although my IQ test was pretty high, so probably the high IQ, but the midwits will definitely fall for this stuff. And it, it seemed to become also, didn't it, a political phenomenon pretty quickly. I just think of my brother who works fairly high up at a fairly big institution I won't maybe name but but he I'm more of a hypochondriac than him and but he was wearing the mask outside at the pub in on the bench and then you know we get up from the bench put it on to walk outside never actually go back in the pub I'm like hang on you wore the mask to walk six feet outside that's insane I wore it three times total ever when I really couldn't get out of it and I think that's so strange but it also became an element of not just high status opinion, but in his case, almost an element of leadership, maybe, or sort of I'm setting an example to others. That was my theory. So it's a high status opinion, and it's signaling that I'm part of the gang. I'd like to see the correlation between Remainers and uh, wearing a mask, actually. But, you know, it became a political phenomenon and a cultural binary quite quickly as well, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, it became very partisan, which was a huge problem for the pandemic response. You know, as soon as Donald Trump said one thing, everyone else would turn against it. You know, they wouldn't want to be on the side of the bad orange man. So things which shouldn't have been partisan in public health became highly politicised. Um, and that's 
that's such a tragedy for the way it's played out for our society and, and of course then the whole globe because we're all we're all interconnected. Um, I wanted to pick up on something else you said um, about being a hypochondriac. So oh, you know yeah. public health, they always talk about the Swiss cheese model. I've just thought maybe there's actually kind of a Swiss cheese model to brainwashing, which is why I can't just say it's one thing. There isn't one thing that makes somebody brainwashable. Um, it, it can be related to your intelligence and your personality type, you know, the big five personality types. So you've, you've already referred to agreeability. We'll have to come back to uh, your agreeability and mine in a minute, because I think that's interesting, you know, that we're having this conversation. We're both probably quite disagreeable people. Um, but there's also whether you've encountered um, propaganda, brainwashing or being overly manipulated before, because, you know, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me. No, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. You know, people learn from mistakes. When I've fallen for things, I'm then more careful about it the next time. Sec uh, moving on from that, you know, one way that you can get that is not just through experience, but education. That's what the book's about. You know, the best way to make sure you're not brainwashed is to read this, this book. Free your mind. You know, there's a whole chapter in there called Get Immunity that details different nudges and propaganda techniques. Because once you know what they look like, they're easier to spot. Um, there's also how much of... It, you expose yourself to. We interviewed a magician for the book and one of the most basic lessons from that is if you don't want to fall for the magic, don't go to the magic show. You know, if you didn't watch any ads during Covid, if you just didn't watch any TV, if you didn't look at the billboards, if you, if you didn't go on your phone much, you wouldn't have known so much about it. You know, it was very, it was very immersive in the media, but people who were watching it 24-7 would have had those daily death announcements and weird instructions to wash and quarantine their shopping um, foisted upon them much more than people that weren't looking. So, you know, it's, it's how, much of it, how much of it you consumed. Um, and then there's also a question of practising what you've learned. So, you know, once you learn to speak up and to air disagreement, it gets easier and easier. Um, it doesn't mean it's, you know, always without consequences or it's it's plain sailing but you can learn to differentiate yourself from the crowd and learn to switch off from groupthink more quickly so you know there could be a kind of a swiss cheese model for propaganda there on to agreeability i think that is very important you know the most likely profession to join the nazi party in the early days were doctors well that doesn't mean that doctors are natural nazis but doctors are very agreeable quite often because they're conscientious and hard-working and um, they have to you know, study very hard to become doctors. Um, I don't think it's a great trait, agreeable. I wish it was called something else. It sounds like you should want to be the agreeable person, doesn't it? Yeah. I think it really rankles me because I'm probably quite far on the disagreeable end. But that means not that I'm not an agreeable person to know. It doesn't mean that I don't like chatting to people and I don't want to upset people all the time, but I will speak up if I, if I think something different. I'll have courage of my convictions try to do the brave thing or the moral thing I won't necessarily go along the crowd and I think that that is a quality that we should be applauding and encouraging and not labeling disagreeable yeah I mean you could call it people pleasing perhaps would be a more pejorative way of putting it but yeah I've never found you disagreeable or I mean I actually get reasonable scores on agreeableness which surprises people maybe there's something about being agreeable in the micro but not the macro scale you know mm. because 
for me, my experience of this was just, this is something everyone else is doing. This is another thing that normies are doing, like going on holidays and all these things I don't do. To me, it was just, oh, that's just a normie world. My parents were pressuring me to get the vaccine. My brother was asking me, when are you getting your booster? Didn't realize I hadn't had any of them. And um, it was a lot of pressure. And obviously there was this, if you don't get a vaccine, you won't be able to travel. I just went, cool, I'll just never leave the country again then. And I still haven't because I just kind of set that as my rule. So maybe that is disagreeable. But although in the book, actually, you quote Eric Koffer, and he, apparently his theory that those who belong to a compact group, i.e. family, religion, tribe, are more immune to proselytizing movements. So that was interesting because I don't know, because a lot of the people buying into all the COVID stuff were family people. But you also say creative people are more immune to it. So I think maybe that's where I come in. I don't know. It just seems some of us are just weirdos who just don't go along with stuff. Yeah, no, this... This idea of belonging to a group giving you some resistance from a bigger group is really true in terms of COVID and vaccines as well, because it was certain ethnic and cultural uh, minority groups who were less likely to be vaccinated. You'd hear the way it was talked about in quite interesting veiled terms. Public health authorities would talk about the dangers of multi-generational living um, in terms of transmission of the virus. Well, who are they talking about when they talk about multi-generational living? Um, or people, you know, stubbornly uh, insisting on going to their place of worship. Well, they weren't talking about Christians who shut the churches. Um, and vaccine resistance, of course, is higher in black and some other ethnic minority groups. Um, not so much among um, Asians, but there are these um, familial within cultural groups that will give them strength to resist wider influence. Yeah, I wonder if it comes down to those who see themselves as, as part of the, the society at large or benefiting from the current system. So if you have a stable government job, you see yourself as kind of part of the professional managerial class. Whereas if you see yourself as a group who's not necessarily served by that, you're much more naturally suspicious of it. That's that's probably how, how that works, I think. But um, there's so much in this. I mean, there's there, what about this thing about the way they sold the vaccines to us using things like scarcity and social proof? The thing about those things, I'm familiar with them from when I did uh, online sales and sort of copywriting. So we were using these techniques on other people and I was sending out these emails and using them and I felt a bit bad about it at times. So I'm kind of immune to them to the point where, I'm not immune actually, if, if I still like something, I'll consider buying it even if they use these tactics. But they make me less likely to buy it now because I go, if you're really pushing the scarcity tactics that much, maybe there's something off here. So actually on me, because I've done them, they make me less likely to use it. But they were using that to get people to take the vaccine Things like your your top of the queue, etc., and various techniques. Yeah, um, it's interesting because the UK and the US government are both investigating the use of online choice architecture by companies, where it can worsen consumer experience. So by reducing competition in the marketplace, um, and worsen prices and disempower the consumer. And the reports by the Competition and Markets Authority and the FTC are quite interesting on that. But it doesn't mean that the government doesn't do the same things itself. So like, you'll recognise the techniques when you've seen them in online shopping. Let's say I'm looking for a dress and the shopping form tells me that 46 people are looking at this dress now. And you think, oh wow, I must be onto something. This is a popular dress. But it says um, only only one left. You think, oh gosh, they're running out. There's the there's the scarcity. So I've been hit with social conformity and scarcity. And then it might use it might use price anchoring as well. So you know it says it's 
59.99 and it's the five that sticks in your head but it's basically 60 pounds and then they might use some drip pricing so this doesn't work as well with the dress as other products you have to excuse i'm extending this a little bit here but it could say well you know the dress was 59.99 but if you want the belt it's another five pounds and maybe you want our stain remove stain resistant treatment on it i know this doesn't work as well for a dress and, and before you know it you've had to add some extra things on it costs more than you already did already did so there's all these sorts of techniques that are used to, to suck you in online so with the vaccine if you think back to the texts you got they would say things like you're at the top of the queue which makes you feel special that appeals to your ego um they'd make it convenient for you you know they tell you when and where it is um but they might say there are only so many places in this space of time so you think oh gosh if i don't hurry up i might not get my space that's scarcity but, i mean that's that's only the tip of the iceberg actually for the nudging that was used around the vaccine um i didn't talk about vaccine safety and efficacy in a state of fear because that's totally beyond my expertise and remit. I didn't want to go there. But what I did talk about was the incentives and the coercion because we've never had a vaccine which is conveyed upon the public with such um, a cornucopia of, of nudging. And I always felt that the big danger was that some people would fall for it all and be more um, loyal to vaccines and more interested in having them but other people would find the communications disturbing and lose trust and that is that is playing out i mean i can't say that it's definitely my theory but certainly there's more hesitancy around childhood vaccinations now in this country and around the world and I think the problem is that if you try to incentivize people to have a vaccine you know with things like petting zoos or um, you know stickers or cash giveaways jabs for joints there were even brothels giving free sessions in vienna i mean this crazy range of incentives if you do all that but then you say oh and if you still don't have it well we're, we're going to start using the jackboot now there's jabs for jobs you can't you can't go to work unless you've had the vaccine or you're not gonna be able to leave the country you start thinking oh well, all these incentives they're just they're just the first measures in this whole suite of measures until I until I have it you know we're going to get to the stage where I'm pinned on a gurney and I'm forcibly vaccinated and so I think for a whole group of people it will have made them more suspicious and damaged trust in public health authorities and medications I mean I I feel a lot less trusting because I think that all of those sorts of techniques and language don't belong with doctors and public health because it's very corrosive to the idea of bodily autonomy and informed consent. Your consent should be based purely on the risk and the benefit of a procedure and not whether you get a sticker or some ASDA vouchers or whether you'll get sacked if you don't have it. I mean, that really affects informed consent. And the fact that doctors and the NHS did that makes me trust doctors and the NHS less. And I've tried to think about all this really rationally and look at what was going on. Um, I interviewed somebody a couple of weeks ago. It's a woman that came up to me at a live event to tell me that she'd barely left the house for months during COVID because she was so scared, so scared that um, she was scared that she would get long COVID and her, her lungs would be damaged and she'd never exercise again. She was very frightened that her husband would die. They neither were at risk, by the way, at all. Um, they followed all the rules, they barely left the house 
for months are completely obedient. But when Boris Johnson announced a vaccine passport, she said she had a breakdown that day. She tried to kill herself and she was bedbound and under the care of a mental health team for weeks. Because for her, the idea that she'd be forced to have a vaccine made her feel like it was a, like a form of rape. That's the word she used. And the, f the fact that people have been parroting the term safe and effective almost robotically for ages made her feel even worse because she felt it didn't address her concerns. So I, I wonder how many people there are like that. I mean, obviously, she's an extreme end of a scale, but I wonder how many people saw the techniques heard that kind of language, it did not resonate with anything they'd come across in public health before, and it made them lose trust. Yeah, that is shocking, but it, but, it, but it's not in a way that surprising. When I remember how I felt about the COVID passports, I remember Andrew Neil writing that article very much saying we should punish people. I mean, he didn't write the headline, but it was his article and it said we should punish people for not getting the vaccine. Karen Brady's similar article, Sean O'Grady in The Independent, we should punish them, you know, with their jobs, as you've mentioned. That was a very horrible time to think i had people messaging me will i have to leave the country you know it was it was a crazy time just to think what will i have to do i thought will i have to go to prison like over masks i thought i'd be prepared to go to prison if necessary you have these sort of thoughts and i was like right i'll never leave the country again if they try and make me get this thing i'll just never leave the country and i was just thinking what would how would i survive it was a frightening time i started to think would people i know in theory put me in some kind of quarantine camp i started to think you know I was like, I don't think my parents would, but and I was thinking of other family members. You just sort of get into these mindsets. Like, it wasn't a horrible time for people who didn't happen to want to take this weird medical treatment, so or safe and effective treatment, depending which side you're on. But yeah, so that's made people so suspicious. Gone. Well, I was just going to say. I mean, that's the thing. I think that's why COVID for me was such an existential shock. It's why I wrote State of Fear. Um, I haven't stopped thinking about any of these issues since, and it's why I've written Free Your Mind. It's because. We saw that people could en masse be persuaded to obey really strange rules, you know, standing on dots in a supermarket and doing their business through perspex screens, walking into a pub wearing a mask and then taking it off when they sit down and then putting it back on to go to the toilet. Or do you remember people cutting holes in masks to play woodwind instruments? I mean, the world went completely mad. And not just that, they did things like not get married or go to funerals. Um, there are fathers who weren't present at the birth of their babies, so it interfered with all of our human rights and our human rights. So it was like watching, it was like watching an Ash or a Milgram experiment live, but it was everybody all around us, and I found it really disturbing. I, another thing I found very disturbing recently was seeing how thousands of people took to the streets to celebrate mass murder, basically, after the 7th of October. And then for me, that's the other part of the jigsaw puzzle. So people can be made to behave as a mass and they can be made to conform and obey, but they can also be very callous about cruelty and they can even ask for it. You know, they, they want it and they will side with one group of people, it's very collectivist thinking, very tribal thinking, at the expense of their moral bearing. Because I don't think it should be hard to see babies beheaded and burnt and young people interrupted at a dance festival and scenes that look like something from the worst horror film you could imagine. You should be able to see that and just condemn it for what it is. But that's not what people did. They took to the streets. And so they want more of it and cheered it on. 
and that was the next kind of existential shock for me. So, well, what do we what do we do? This is who we are as people. People can be manipulated. And they can be manipulated in all kinds of ways, you know, from learning to read, which is a good thing, that's a form of persuasion, to being sent to prison, a house of correction, and maybe coming out a better person, or not, um, or made to buy a product, or also to fall for totally totalitarian brainwashing. What do you do about it? I mean, these are very big questions for society. But the thing I keep coming back to is the individual, the resistance against the collective, the collectivism that is so dangerous is to self-individuate. And if you think of society as being a plane in free fall, you have to put your own oxygen mask on. So I think the first thing you have to do before you do anything else, before you think about the big questions for society, is you do what you can to learn to identify and resist manipulation. There may be times you want to be manipulated. There may be times you don't care. You can't care about everything. That's why these psychological biases and shortcuts exist. If every time you went to the supermarket you thought in absolute logical clarity and depth about every purchase, you'd be there for days. You know, you buy whiskers because eight out of ten cats prefer it, social conformity, it's really easy. It doesn't really matter if you buy that one versus a different tin cat product, tin cat food product. So those kinds of shortcuts are useful but they are exploited, they're used against us to make us do things that we don't always want to do. So that's where I keep coming back to. It's about the individual and that's what Free Your Mind is about. For me, it's the follow-on to what I noticed during those terrible, terrible times of COVID. Um, it's wanting to give people a, a guidebook, like a field manual for the world. Everybody wants a bit of your brain, everybody, from the salesman to the pickup artist to the politician, to the priest, to the policeman, you know, they all want a bit of your brain. What are you gonna do about it? You do need to know, you do need to know it's happening and how to arm yourself as much as you want to. Which all sounds very militant and military, doesn't it? But I do feel quite militant about it. I think that people need a defence. There are thousands of books that teach you how to um, practice the dark arts of communication. There are thousands of books that teach you about propaganda, advertising, nudging my bets noir, brainwashing and effects. And if you look at how many books are, you know, aimed at teaching people how to resist those dark arts. There's almost nothing. I think that this is the first book that just tries to give you psychological resilience, that doesn't go into the specific genres of advertising or PR, it just says this is how you make your brain resistant. Yeah, good point. Yeah, there aren't, I can't think of any books that do that. And I, I was actually gonna ask you later about the Hamas example. Absolutely shocking that I actually saw a video just today, very effective video, a guy going around the streets saying, can you sign this uh, in support of Hamas? And, and the, all these young people go, yeah, 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 brilliant. Where do I sign? He goes, I just have to read you the terms and conditions first. And it's like, <laughs> do you agree with the slaughter of all non-Muslims, Jews, Christians throughout the world? Do you agree with beheading of babies? And he asks some of these questions, then they go, uh, no. But they're so brainwashed. And that's what I was going to ask, how, how to unbrainwash them. Because it's now ended up on the same level as Black Lives Matter, where you have people like just posting the square on, on social media. Your Instagram models are now starting to post just vaguely pro-Palestine stuff. And you can be pro-Palestine, but they, they're not thinking about it. It's become just, this is the current thing, to quote my own podcast. And it, but with Black Lives Matter, you have to have a little bit of discernment to go, oh, they're against a the nuclear family, they're a neo-Marxist group. But that was a little bit high level, but it shouldn't be high level to go, the people raping and killing people and raping women on video, pretty much, they're bad. But 
you've, they've even been able to brainwash people. So that does suggest it's another level. Oh my goodness. Well, you're, you're really, I mean, this is really an emotional touchstone for me at the moment. I was so shocked and sickened by not just the atrocities on the 7th of October, but the response in this country. I mean, it's a real wake up call to liberal, progressive simpletons everywhere and people who are less liberal and progressive like me. You know, this is incredible that people from our safe streets and their comfy armchairs in academia can be so stupid about who they're supporting. Um, it's not like me to be self the fence, Nick. What are you? What are you doing? What are you bringing out to me? Is this like? Is this what happens when you put disagreeable and disagreeable together? <laughs> um, but actually, I think I, you know, maybe I have been too restrained in terms of how I talk about some things because, you know, we're in a very, I think we're in a very dark time when people celebrate mass mar- murder. I mean, go back to Black Lives Matters. Of course, that was a very hysterical time. We were, we were still in all the COVID insanity. And then at a time when you were supposed to be wearing masks, I remember seeing somebody in the media, though, kneeling on the ground in London, wearing a mask, saying, I can't breathe. Oh, well, of course you can't. You're wearing a mask, you idiot, outside. And this, this BLM hysteria took over here as well, where although there is still racism, people don't face the same problems as they might do in the States. And, you know, let's not even go to the stats about police killings in the states when i saw um keir starmer kneeling for blm i mean any respect i might have still had for the labor party was just utterly annihilated because i'd researched who blm are as soon as i heard about them and you mentioned how they want to they they recommend um breaking down the western model of the nuclear family and i thought well that doesn't sound very good i think think the family's a really good thing. I, I think it's awful that I'm in a single parent household. Families are better. Um, but they want to defund the police. I thought, well, this, this definitely sounds a bad idea. We, we don't want to defund the police, do we? And then you see political leaders actually kneeling in support of an organisation that espouses these highly anarchic and nihilistic policies. The pro-Palestine cause is even muddier because people think that they are marching for the oppressed and of course that's a very facile reading of the israel-palestinian history anyway which we're not going to get into here that's i'm not an academic i'm not a historian in who specializes in israel but it's it's just a very facile understanding of um a long long story and you think okay so if you're if you're cheering for Palestine and Hamas, you're, you're cheering for a regime that would not, that would just choose to kill babies, but, you know, actively, actively try to kill all the children and would implement Sharia law. You know, women, women don't get to choose how they dress or where they go. They don't have autonomy or agency. Homosexuality is punishable by death or imprisonment. And they want the death of all Jews. It's in their charter and the annihilation of the Israel, the state of Israel. So to think there are people in this country that cheer for that, you think, well, we're very lost. How has this happened? And I think plain old anti-Semitism is at the heart of it. So that's that's beyond anything I could tackle in Free Your Mind. But they haven't they haven't looked into a very you know insidious ideology that's had a long march into academic institutions and that's been upwind of our culture 
for a long time. It's funny because a lot of my followers have been really angry with me for taking what they see as a Zionist stance. Now I'm not, I, I do, you know, the foundational question, do you think Israel, the state of Israel has a right to exist? My answer is yes, I think that makes me a Zionist, which I don't think should be anything to be ashamed of, but Zionism has become a, a dirty word like white supremacist or conspiracy theorist. And they think that I have fallen for some sort of pro-Israeli propaganda. I don't think so. I think what it is is that my moral bearings are just still intact. I know barbaric acts of cruelty when I see it. And I think that the people that perpetrate those acts are a very, very bad people. We've just seen the face of evil. And so I wouldn't take to the streets and cheer and celebrate after that happens. It's very simple. It's a question of, of remembering your morals and being able to think for yourself. And I think what it is, is sadly that those people are in fact under the spell of a pro-Palestinian propaganda, which is simplistic and deceptive. It's very hard to break through because once people take a position, they often don't change. You know, we've, we've seen that with, with COVID. What are we seeing in the COVID inquiry? That people are changing side or position? Not at all. They just dig down deeper. They double down. Yeah. And I was going to ask you about that because I've had that as well. The attacks that, oh, Nikki, why are you falling for this one? You don't normally fall for stuff. And a, another friend who does a podcast has had the same from his audience. And I wonder if there's a thing where you can go too far where, you, and for the reasons we've said, because they've done so many mass propaganda attacks on people, most notably with COVID, People are now suspicious about everything to the point where they lack humanity. Have you noticed this trend? It's the, I'm sure you have, it's everything that happens on, it's like, this is not, this is fake. And immediately under every post on X or Twitter, it's like, let's immediately debunk this. This must be fake. And that can lead to a sort of position where you lack, not only do you lack nuance and you, you, you're you not seeing each thing as it is, you're just applying a kind of basic heuristic to use Scott Adams' term. You, you also though you've lost your humanity because you're immediately dismissing something that it actually could be horrific and real and go oh it's just another wef thing or whatever it is you're saying have you noticed that as well yeah yeah people have been red pilled too hard and uh well they've just fallen down rabbit holes and they've they've got lost they also thought i was there with them in that rabbit hole and i never was i've never claimed that there's any evil agenda behind what happened during covid I think there are some evil agendas and some constellations of interest, but nothing I can prove. Um, I really did write just about the behavioural science and fear-mongering aspect, government propaganda. But people explained that as being, you know, about a depopulation agenda or Satanism or cabals of evil people or even Jewish people at the root of it. And so once your explanation is that it's always a group of people who are very powerful, who are making things appear different than they are, then there's a suspicion about anything. You know, sort of Russia-Ukraine, um, seeing it now with Israel and Palestine. There were people who'd been, I thought, quite sensible on COVID, who as soon as that hospital in Gaza was bombed, chose to believe the account given by Hamas who are an organisation that behead babies, rather than wait for intelligence to come in and believe the state of Israel. So if you've chosen to automatically believe terrorists rather than be restrained in forming an opinion, 
it should be a wake-up call that you've got a little bit lost in too much conspiracy thinking but most importantly you know as well forgotten your humanity i think automatically siding with the baby killers is not a good idea they're not to be trusted no and we also saw that assumption from the bbc immediately believing hamas propaganda which is incredibly disturbed when the bbc are doing it and so i was going to ask you it's maybe a slight digression from your book but who do you think will win what i'm calling the woke versus israel culture war because it, it we, at first we saw the true face of decolonization with these people you've mentioned, Rivka Brown was one of them at Navarra Media saying this is a day of celebration. And you thought, wow. And everybody, all these people saying, what did you think decolonization meant? This is what it meant. And you go, okay, this is a mask off moment for the, the woke side. But, and it was, it was a moment of horror. But then it very quickly turned to how Israel's terrible and blah, blah, and the BBC and Channel 4 saying, refusing to call Hamas terrorists, then calling them, okay, they're a prescribed terror organization, according to some, including the government, which is a weird sort of passive-aggressive way the BBC has resolved it. So do, which way do you see this, this going? I don't really know. I think, I think we're genuinely in very dark times. I haven't felt as much despair about what human beings are capable of and for the future of our own country as I have in the last two weeks. So let me try and answer all those things in turn. Yes, the mainstream media, including the BBC, all automatically believed Hamas. The organisation that rapes women would cut open a pregnant woman and stab the fetus and kidnap literal survivors of the Holocaust. They chose to believe that organisation rather than wait for intelligence um, and for the official report from the IDF. So that's really bad, isn't it? Um, and the woke showed their true colours. I wrote about that decolonisation um, comments. There are a few academics around the world who said the same thing, basically. Decolonisation is not a metaphor along those lines. I wrote a substack about it and I lost loads of subscribers, paid subscribers straight away. Um, I took quite, quite a financial hit on that, actually. And I thought that was so, that was so interesting. You see, people don't like having their beliefs challenged. What do we do about it? Well, in the spirit of the book, free your mind, I think you have to come back to the individual. You have to self-individuate. You have to recapture your sense of morals. Um, I set up uh, this thing called the October Declaration with a group of people, Alison Pearson, Toby Young, Emma Webb, um, Dr. Jamit Varish, Ian Rons, Francis Hall, um, which is a letter we ask public figures to sign and support to say that they um, stand in solidarity with British Jews and oppose anti-Semitism, that they unequivocally condemn the terrorism, because you should be able to do that. You should be able to just condemn atrocities without contextualisation, relativism and both-sidism, and ask the media to call Hamas terrorists, because that's, it's a terrorist organisation in law and in fact, and not calling it a terrorist organisation has totally misled the public narrative. It's the worst example of misinformation since COVID, that's for sure. Um, I think the BBC and the other media organisations are in part responsible for the protests, the rise in anti-Semitism and the public applying this false moral equivalence to a state set up under international law, which has a right to exist, and a terrorist group. I don't really know what the answer is longer time, because how did this sort of dangerous ideology take hold? I don't think it's just a question of an insidious creep. I, it doesn't 
just take hold on its own. I think it takes hold because people are empty. There's an emptiness, and I think a lot of people can feel this in society. The last chapter of Free Your Mind is called Stand for Something, because I think people do need to re rediscover their values. For some people that might be going back to church, it could be some other club, maybe you're going to write all your principles down on a piece of paper, but you have to do it, because if you don't know what your values are, somebody else will fill you up with their values. So it's not enough to just say, well, Hamas is a death cult and they don't just want the death of uh, Jews and the state of Israel, according to their own charter. They don't, they don't just want to change our culture. We've let them. And why have we let them? The most important thing we need to do actually is to resurrect a love of our own British culture and values. Um, that's a big thing I have no immediate answers for, but it's, it's obvious, it's obvious to me to see that this wouldn't take hold if we weren't more confident in ourselves. And so I think that to resist manipulation of any form, one of the hardest things, but one of the most important things is to have a strong set of personal values. It's made me a lot more open-minded to religion actually, because although I've always had faith, I've always believed in God as brought up in a, in a C of E school, that's not really been a part of my life in a big way um, ever, and not for a long time. But I think that the value of going to a place of worship is having a container for morals um, and, and a reminder, you know, a regular reminder of, of who you are, and what you believe in, and just codifying, codifying basic principles of humanity that's not the answer for everybody, but it's something I've been doing. Yeah, that's been the answer for me as well. I mean, you also talk about stoicism as one answer in the book. You talk about Seneca and facing death puts you beyond political influence. That's another part of it because they're exploiting people's fear. I mean, you even mentioned this book, The Nile of Death, another book, Ernest Becker, which I read ages ago. Because it gets, I mean, I was going to try and get less heavy with my next question, but that's actually more heavy. But <laughs> Should talk... we do death quickly? Yeah. Why not? I mean, I'm constantly fascinated uh, by uh, death. Yes, this is huge because, of course, COVID would not have taken off like it did if we weren't terrified of death. Now, some fear of death is natural. It's correct. It's, it's totally logical and rational to be frightened of death because we don't know what happens next. But whereas we used to be a culture where we would lay out our dead in our home, we now have 24-hour funeral parlours, we're totally disconnected from the everydayness of death, which is why people basically lost their shit. Um, and one reason that those daily death announcements worked the way they did is because there was, I would say, quite a cynical framing of the statistics. It could have been unconscious and reflecting the fears of the people that did the dashboard and communicated to them, but we always talked about deaths and not recoveries. We were told about hospital admissions, but not discharges. So the focus was on death. You know, we don't talk about daily deaths from sepsis. We don't talk about daily deaths from cardiovascular disease. We've never done this about anything. So that natural fear of death during a pandemic was really put on steroids by government communication. But I think if we had an easier relationship with death in the first place, we would have got through that a lot better. We're really lacking stoicism about death. Yeah, and you even say in the book that the Ernest Becker Foundation suggests that people might have been stockpiling toilet paper during COVID due to trying to symbolically clean away the stench of their mortality. And you even said due to the fear of death, people almost want to be brainwashed as a way of coping with it. That was really interesting. Mm. 
yeah I mean there's other things going on with the toilet paper some people think it ran out because it's just such a big bulky item you can remove it from the shelves more quickly than small items but I like the I like the Becca foundation theory there and I think there's something to it you know it's that it's that physicality um it's the it's the Freudian anal phase yeah I almost want to there's so much I can ask you about in the book I almost want to actually about before you go about this the porn aspect actually because um to yes <laughs> no one asks me about the porn aspect oh, yes nick this is a... yes no one's asked me <laughs> it's so unpopular come on let's do it well yeah it's a sharp left turn but i was really interested because you were talking about the link between porn and autogynophilia it's attraction mm. to being a woman which turfs often cite as the real reason men are dressing up as women and that it yeah. might explain the rise in the number of trans people and you you, you, you spoke to people in the book you say that is it they watch porn from an early age to the point where they became trans. That freaked me out. And the second point that freaked me out was this claim. From, <laughs> from, Has it made uh, you question your own porn usage habits? It, it, it made me question some of my past choices. But um, luckily, I didn't grow up with it in the same way as this generation. The other thing, Andrea Long Chu claims that watching porn is itself a submissive act. I thought, that's a bit weird, but I kind of see what, where they're going. So that freaked me out. So I don't know, what, what, explain that bit. And uh, should we ban porn? I've asked like three questions <sighs> I hope you're not trying to squeeze the sex bit into the shortest bit of the interview. I, I was honestly surprised that people didn't ask us about this more. And I think there's a kind of a British awkwardness about sex. Um, interestingly, you know, I said I lost lots of Substack subscribers when I took a pro-Israel anti, anti-Semitism stance. Guess what? When I wrote about, um, I extracted some of the sex part of the chapter for my Substack, I also lost subscribers then. I think people don't like to be told they shouldn't watch porn. Okay, so if I take you through what this chapter is about, and it's called Don't Be a Slave to Sex. What you have to understand about sex is it's, it's a wonderful, natural thing that we all enjoy doing. Don't stop that. That's not what we're saying. Sex is brilliant. But it's a very, very powerful reward mechanism. Action, reward. And think about that moment when you orgasm. The French call it le petit mort. It's a moment of total loss of consciousness and self in a way. It's why sex has been used um, in some experiments, such as MK Ultra's Operation Midnight Climax, I think they called it, or was it just Operation Midnight? I might be making up the climax <laughs> bit. Um, to, you know, they, they used brothels and sex in addition to drugs to try to break people down psychologically and experiment on them. Um, and we have never, we've never had the kind of ubiquitous porn that we have now. So think about a young man in the past. He might have only seen his own erection, or not many others if he was straight. But according to our back of envelope calculation, Patrick and I think that the average boy would have seen about 2,000 erections by the time he's 18. So I grew up with quite a lot of porn around. My dad was a sex addict. It's part of the background to why my first three books were a trilogy about the body as a kind of counterpoint to the pernicious influence of, of porn and sexualization in culture. But porn's changed. It's changed a lot since I grew up. So, you know, I was um, researching one of the major sites, Pornhub, um, and I was quite amazed, to be honest, at, at just the homepage. You know, you don't you don't have to go deep to find some fairly weird sexual activity. They've got, you know, the thumbnails on the homepage, you know, a, a very large number of them are 
featuring girls that they have to tell you in brackets are 18 plus because they put them in school uniforms or they're designed to look really young. Um, there's a lot of pushing boundaries about incest, so talking about stepmoms and stepsisters and stepbrothers. A lot of boundary pushing. There were some very strange things. Um, one with a seasonal vegetable. I did that research around Halloween. Um, strange things with machines and the cartoon anime stuff is is very odd. So there's some there's some quite strange um, directions going on in porn. And you might think you can watch it and it won't change you, but I don't think that's true. Researchers have known since the 1960s that paraphilias can be conditioned into people. Um, one example that I think didn't actually make it into the final cut of the book, which is one of my favourites actually, is about rats. So virgin male rats would normally fancy virgin female rats. But you can train virgin male rats to have kinks. So they trained these male rats to fancy female rats that were wearing jackets and only get aroused by female rats wearing jackets. Quite funny, isn't it? And a similar um, studies taking place with humans. So, you know, if you show men pictures of women in you know, long kinky boots, naked women, long kinky boots, um, eventually you can start showing the pictures of just boots and measure the same kind of arousal levels by checking the engorgement on their penis in, in laboratories. And so what is, what is looking at this pornography doing to sexual proclivities? Well, we interviewed some, we interviewed a, a couple of people and, and found out that in their experience, looking at pornography had affected their their journey to becoming transgender. And I've actually found this in other interviews I've done on my work around the body. So one angle would be that men who might have grown up to be gay, effeminate gay men, were so horrified by the kind of violence that passes for normal in pornography that they stopped identifying with the men and started identifying with the women. Um, and then for some that went a bit further into a genre that's called sissy porn and that created or exaggerated a taste they had for um, becoming transgender themselves. So, and that leads to um, a paraphilia called autogynophilia, which is extremely unpopular in transgender ideology. People like to pretend it's not a thing, but that's where a male is aroused by the idea of himself as a woman. Yeah, and that's what the gender critical people keep pointing out on Twitter, saying this is just that, this is not some human rights movement. And I have to say, some of those experiments sound like you'd have to be pretty broke to sign up for them as a, a medical, you know, you know, when the students do medical experiments, the penis engorgement test, I'm like, I'm, I'll pass. But um, I don't do think the rats were paid, though. Oh, yeah. Poor rats. That's a big No, no, you're getting money for being trained to fancy only female jacks in rackets. In jackets. You know, if they were ever let free, they'd have been sorely disappointed in the wild rat world, wouldn't they? Yeah, especially in summer. All these um, undressed female rats strutting about. Yeah. That is so weird, though. I mean, and that's a fascinating part of the book. You, while we're on that, it's slightly unrelated, semi-related. Do you think that the um, trans movement comes from that? Or do you think it comes from feminism? There's a big argument that, you know, it's misogynist. And I've always thought, is it, though? I think it comes from the same thinking, or until your book, anyway. I thought it came from really the same thinking as feminism or leftism, that well, women can do everything men can do. Why can't they then literally be men? It doesn't seem to come from... Don't blame the poor old misogynist. You know, it seems to come from the, uh, from the left to me. But what do you think? Um, I think it's probably multifactorial, like lots of complex human 
situations are. Um, I think that there is something else going on which you can see in other areas as well, which is to do with being in a largely post-religious vacuum. I think if you want to change your sex and you believe you can, you're in a way trying to create the ultimate divine transpersonal relationship. So it's it's a belief that could only take hold in the way it has at a particular time, I think, when people are not grounded in reality or also um, contained within a sort of a religious crucible of seeking transpersonal relationships a different way. Okay, very interesting. Yeah, a lot of this stuff seems to come from a, a void of, of meaning as well as we've discussed and a void of religion. Um, all right, since we haven't got that much time left, I'm thinking, what, else, what should I end on? There's so much, because the book's so wide-ranging. There's so many things I could talk about. I haven't asked you about Sadiq Khan's mate campaign, which is not maybe in the book, but I wanted to ask you about it. And there's so much, I don't know. I love that. It's an example of when the behavioral scientists get it completely wrong. Yeah, right? totally ineffective. Um, that was behavioral scientists at Ogilvy that developed it. And it's it's kind of the, you know, you, you've got these... Um, geeky, progressive people that live in their office, you know, you can just imagine they're probably vegetarian, bespectacled, they think they're really, really clever, they know how to manipulate people. And if you watch the campaign, it was so offensive. It's a group of lads sitting around in a room playing a video game, and one of them starts making some quite light-hearted, not really that serious banter about chicken breasts. Uh, is it breasts? So oh, I, I fancy some spicy breasts or something, and he means fried chicken but all oh, does he mean a woman's breasts it's like it's like kind of that level of banter um i have two teenage sons it's it's not the sort of thing that would even really raise an eyebrow really um but you're supposed to think he's appalling and of course he's white the rest of the group aren't white he's white it's there's so many things about this which are predictable and the the, the video game part of it ends when you click the button to say mate um, and it was also used in a billboard campaign, um, there was a social media campaign. And the idea is that men are supposed to call out other men for being sexist by saying, mate. And the way they, the reason that the behavioral scientists designed the word that way is because the elongated vowel gets your attention, as does the clipped consonant. It's literally like Barbara Woodhouse, the dog trainer, um, who was on TV when I was growing up going, sit. It's the same way you would train a dog. It's supposed to create a kind of a Pavlovian response. It's so insulting, but it basically launched to widespread derision. It, it just fails. And it's so transparently about pinning blame on young men for the fact that sexism exist, exists, rather than sorting out any of the um, systemic problems that would actually be within Sadiq Khan's remit, um, you know, like the police. It, it, it's an example of behavioural scientists thinking they know best, um, how best to manipulate people and what the real issues are and not understanding the whole world problem or how, how real world people will really respond. Yeah. And do you think that's going to be used more and more to sort of control a sort of failing country? Because I was thinking today, uh, as we record, Sadiq Khan just released a thing about Islamophobia Awareness Month, which is awful, but it was because awful timing because much as Sadiq Khan can't just talk about anti-Semitism without saying and Islamophobia, Keir Starmer released this. Now, it was obviously because Muslims are abandoning his party and he's trying to get them back on board. But we see this kind of thing all the time, a failure to deal with the actual problem. Instead, some kind of weird Orwellian take that's supposed to kind of contain us. I think they're going to use this more and more to sort of fail to tackle the real problems. And, and it's kind of anarcho-tyranny again. It's, it's punishing innocent people, like a just normal bloke talking about football in, in that other example, 
while criminals run free because that's actually difficult to deal with? Oh, sure. The problem is your average gammon in Britain who's Islamophobic, whatever that means, rather than the fact that there's been a large influx of Muslims into the country in a relatively short period of time without adequate social cohesion. So the problem is you, the citizen, and not the way the government's done things. It's the same with COVID, like the Look Him in the Eyes campaign. Look him in the eyes and tell him you never broke the rules. The problem's your fault if somebody catches COVID and dies because you didn't follow the rules, not because the government didn't follow its existing pandemic plan and have an adequate stockpile of PPE and has designed hospitals like many cities of infection. The problem's always yours. It's always deflected onto the citizen. I think it probably always has been. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's really a new thing, but I think we're seeing we're seeing that tool brought out of the toolbox quite a lot. Um, the good thing is that once you learn to spot any of these techniques, then you can't unsee them. Um, another one that we see a lot is trigger stacking. I mean, this is one kind of specific thing people can try and watch out for. How often do you see a story or a public health ad that plays not just on one fear, but on multiple fears? So an example would be um, a story in the news about a parasite that is spreading from Southern Europe to Northern Europe because of climate change. So already we've got a parasite and we've got climate change. But wait, the parasite can bite you and give you a disease, a new disease. So now we've got, we've got disease. And then it can pass from human to human. So what you've got is four fears all stacked on top of each other. So trigger sacking is something that people have known with regards to animal behaviour and training for a long time. And once you see that, you won't unsee that one in the news. Very interesting. So many topics, but I, I sometimes ask this question at the end because we've sort of covered, I sometimes ask whether Britain's finished, but we kind of covered that and how bleak you're feeling about Britain. But the other question I often ask is, uh, how do we win the culture war, which assumes, you know, that we're on the same side and that there is a war and various things. But the, kind of your book is a big part of this. It's how to resist programming and so on. But what's your overall take on how we win this thing? First of all, I'm not sure that the war is framed the way people think it is. Because the people that mirror the world back to us aren't us. So people think that a TV screen, for instance, is their window into reality or their smartphone screen is, and it's not true. You know, the TV screen is a screen. It mediates your view of reality. So a lot of what we see in drama, soap operas, the news, advertising is a world which reflects what certain actors want us to see, it isn't real. I think most people are normal, decent, relatively able to think for themselves, good, and on the right side of the culture wars. So ultimately my hope is in, is in individuals. Strong societies made of strong individuals. Okay, all right, that's a, that's a positive end. Do you think we, do you think it's, do you think we have a, chance of this thing ending soon or everyone's always talking about peak woke and when now we've seen that you know people are going to fight back against it this decolonization was another one but is that is that too hopeful to just think it's good because i sometimes think i want to be out of this culture war and then i think of course you do nick it's a war who enjoys a war you've just got to keep on you know and keep going until we win well there's another chapter in the book called um choose your illusion <laughs> it's in a sense it's my least favorite recommendation that we make but it's, it's one option. You know, you don't have to be in it. You can choose the reality around yourself. I follow a lot of political accounts on Twitter, so I see a lot of politics. 
I follow a lot of people that are interested in the culturals, so I see a lot of culturals. I could unfollow all of them, and I could only follow um, architecture and spoken word poetry. What would I see then every day? I'd see architecture and spoken word poetry. So you can choose your illusion. There is no such thing as one fixed reality. The, the universe is infinitely large. So you can construct a reality around yourself that isn't any less real. It's just a different, a different real than you've been looking at. Um, nothing will be substantially different in the world if you do that, but you might be happier. You can just switch some of it off. Yeah, I do think about that. I mean, my job's kind of tied up with it now, but I also thought you talk in the book about the mere exposure effect. And I was thinking, yeah, I, I feel like I can discern the culture war and, I'm, and I keep my moral compass intact, but just being exposed to it is pretty miserable every day. I sometimes think I wish I was doing something else. Well, it makes it seem bigger than it is as well. Like I said, if you weren't looking at it and you were talking to people about completely different things, it would become smaller in importance. So, our so you know, our social media use and smartphone use is a big part of the problem. Uh, one study shows we pick up our phones up to 80 times a day. I am myself a little addicted to Twitter and my phone. Um, but actually, you can absorb information more rationally and coolly when it's through the written word. So um, photographs and videos have what's called the truthiness effect and they influence you more emotionally. So you could pick a couple of publications that you trust and like, or maybe that they have contrasting views and just read them once a day. You know, the old style newspaper um, style of absorbing information. And then you would feel less bombarded by negativity, less addicted to it, less influenced by it, and you could choose a better illusion for yourself. So there are always options, and they're all in the book. Okay, buy the book. After this, I've got to go and host <laughs> a show where we go through tomorrow's news headlines. So I'm not sure there's any hope for me, but other people can definitely do what Laura just recommended. Book, the book is free you can in mind. You poor news, though. I can definitely do that <laughs> part. Um, with the help of the book this this book will change your life so laura where can people find you um i'm on twitter at bare reality and i have a substack called thefreemind.co.uk every week i write about um a way you can free your mind or comment on the madness that is all around us um and i have a website lauradodsworth.com all right so check those out and your substack's very good and you also interview people sometimes don't you had peter hitchens the other day I do. I run an interview once a month with somebody who's at the vanguard of their thinking, an outlier, somebody disagreeable like you and me. <laughs> All right. So check that out. Thanks, Laura. Thanks for your time. Thank you. All right. That was Laura. Great episode, I thought. Go and buy her book, Free Your Mind. And if you want to support this podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon, buy me a digital coffee, leave a comment. I reply to them all. Buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon. And we'll be back next week with another great episode.